Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is the last day of November in 2020. I think most of us are quite pleased that uh, the, the year is coming to an end. And as we pour through the consequences of the election, as we look at the post-mortem, there are more and more discussions about the supposed decline or collapse or end of the Republican Party. Uh, David Brooks, who specializes in miserable post-mortems, has a piece in the Times this morning, the rotting of the Republican mind, given that he was once a Republican. I wonder if his mind is rotten. Uh, in the Washington Post, we have a similar sort of thing. The GOP, a party that cannot change, given that it's a conservative party. I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, last week, we had a wonderful discussion with uh, Edmund uh, Fawcett, the author of an excellent new book, Conservatism, The Fight for a Tradition. And Fawcett, uh, in terms of trying to define the history, the modern, the contemporary history of conservatism, uh, talks about 1980 onwards as the birth of what he calls hyperliberalism and the hard right. What happened in 1980? One thing, of course, that happened was that Ronald Reagan was elected president. Uh, and we have uh, an enormously important and substantial and physically intimidating new book called Reaganland by Rick Perlstein, the, uh, the author who has cornered the market in America, the history of American conservatism. Uh, Rick, is 1980 the the birth of American modern conservatism? It's very interesting. I just got into a little uh, Twitter chit chat about questions of periodization. And I, not I, I noted that I'm not much of a periodizer myself because I tend just to see kind of tributaries and uh, whirls and eddies and waves and uh, not many kind of watersheds or hard stops. But I, I don't actually think that 1980 was any particular kind of uh, watershed in the in the sense that all the um, all the factors that made Reagan Reagan and made him a political success had been in the air for quite some time. Of course, this book is the fourth culminating volume in a series of four, and the story I tell. Uh, begins in 1958. The first book is about the nomination of a Reagan-like presidential candidate by the Republicans in 1964, Barry Goldwater. Um, so uh, I, I, I see this, uh, some, and, and then of course I get asked, when did the movements that we're in begin? Uh, and I have a hard time with that one too, but my kind of jokey answer is 1619. So I'm kind of like um, a bit like uh, Zhao Enlai when asked, uh, what he thought of the French Revolution. Supposedly, he said it's too early to tell. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna dodge a bit on that one. Uh, Rick, you famously said in terms of writing about America, um, 
that if, if you're not writing about the berserk, you're not writing about America. Um, as you said, you've written this, this, um, this four-part series on the history of American conservatism. Why do you need to be berserk? Or why, <laughs> what is it about the berserk and America that ties the two together? That's interesting. I said that uh, a few months ago, right when the book came out in an interview with someone uh, from the, the Guardian. And apparently uh, there was a certain resonance to the phrase, right? It's actually borrowed from um, Philip Roth, who um, in one of his novels, the one he, uh, that, that, that kind of comments on the Clinton impeachment, uh, he coined the phrase, the American berserk. And my second book is called Nixonland and covers 1966 to 1972. And the original working title was The Politics and Culture of the American Berserk. Uh, so why is America berserk? <laughs> uh, wow. That would require a bit of reflection. I think that- Maybe another thousand page book, right? Yeah, or several thousand. Uh, I think that- uh, um, one factor would have to be that we uh, self-selected <laughs> to uh, attract, um, you know, these kind of mavericks from all over the world who came here as migrants. But another is, I think, the um, the um, the migrants who came here involuntarily. Uh, the fact that America was built on this very strange institution of chattel slavery which deformed our politics from the beginning and of course led to a war in which almost a million Americans slaughtered each other. And we've kind of worked through that trauma ever since. I mean, that's if that's not a formula for a strange sort of political culture, I don't know what is. Uh, and then you kind of um, add in the sheer gargantuanness of America and the fact that it's kind of metropolitan areas and uh, it's rural areas. Um, have to kind of uh, form a political body together and you add in the constitutional system we have that gives the rural areas and the more conservative areas uh, an, an automatic advantage when it comes to governing the country and it becomes a real outlier when it comes to the rest of the advanced industrial world um and then uh, you know it's a country it's very interesting i uh, i i detect uh, that you might come from um uh, a different, a different uh, origin point. I have a lot of fun talking to um, reporters and journalists who are stationed in America from around the world, and they mm -hmm. tend to have this great affection for America. They do or they don't. They do, and well, I think we used to. I'm not sure if we do anymore. Yeah, we can talk about that. But I, and I, I often talk about my frustration with America. And they're much able to kind of, kind of pull out a sense of the redeeming value. And it always comes down to um, this strange sort of dynamism America has. Like I was talking to one of my Swedish friends and I was like, you know, you know, Sweden is so rational and humane and America is so strange and, and, and self-destructive. And he pointed out uh, a story I told him about um, sitting down for dinner in America with a bunch of Swedish parliamentarians who were on kind of a junket to America. And he noticed, he asked me what they were wearing. And I said, yeah, they were all wearing identical black suits. And he pointed out that, you know, Sweden didn't come up with jazz or bluegrass or Elvis Presley, you know, that that's, that's America's lot. Yeah. You know, but that's, uh, you know, sort of classic Swedish cultural or political masochism. I'm not, but sure. I've, I've gotten the same, I've gotten the same from British folks. Uh, well, I, I'm not going to fall into that trap. But, but, but that was pretty oh, 
you you mentioned the the gargantuanness of America. You are not physically. You you look very trim actually, except for your beard. Uh, but you are a gargantuan writer. This this new book, Reagan Lands, over a thousand pages. I'm not quite sure how you achieve it all. Um, and you are a gargantuan writer. You've been described, and, and I love this description, the, the hyper-caffeinated Herodotus of the American <laughs> century by the nation, which uh, I, I'm assuming because it's the nation, it's a sympathetic... Uh, Absolutely. Sympathetic. And you certainly have the nose of Herodotus. I'm not sure about the mind. Um, <laughs> he was called the father of lies, by the way. By Yeah, uh, well, uh, actually, the conservatives, of course, have come back on that and said, Rick Perlstein, you're no Herodotus in the uh, one of these horrible conservative magazines. Anyway. Oh, my God. You know where the bodies are buried. Yeah. So so but but Rick, in all seriousness, what, what drives you? I mean, you're you've dedicated <laughs> your life to making sense of American conservatism. These, this is an enormous amount of work. I mean, when I write books, there are about 200 pages and that kills me. How can I'm you write a thousand page books? Well, you four know, four years of American you know, history. You know, you know um, what Ben Franklin said, uh, he started a letter, I apologize for the length of this letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. Yeah, but, well, that's the Wittgenstein. Well, there's a Wittgenstein quote like that. Yeah. Well. But 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 you're you're you're, you're prodigious. You yes. you are. I, I am. You are the Herodotus. I'm not sure how much coffee or other various <laughs> stimulants you use, but you are clearly enormously energized to make sense of this. Where does this come from, Rick? Wow, uh, that's definitely a question for a shrink, isn't it? Uh, I, I can be a shrink for a few minutes. Yeah, um, I don't know. Maybe I should consult my uh, roommate on that one. Uh, I bring her in, bring her in your wife. Maybe she has a, an idea on this. Uh, she just contributed a knowing chuckle. Um, <laughs> I think that the subject demands it. I, I, I like to think that, uh, the, the books are exactly the length they need to be to accomplish, uh, that which they set out to do, which, um, is a certain sort of enormous task, which is um, grasping, uh, how, uh, American political culture uh changes right uh how do these enormous kind of battleship sized uh shifts in popular opinion happen um but another is just um uh i try to capture kind of the sheer everydayness of how people actually live history and live their political lives and to me that encompasses not merely politics traditionally understood but popular culture you know, but econ also economics, also kind of family life, also sociology. And um, to kind of grasp, um, you know, what it's like to live in America. You know, what's the smell and the feel of life uh, at a certain point in time? And to do that, methodologically, I try to encompass what an ordinarily kind of aware citizen would consume when it comes to kind of media and popular culture in any given time. Um, and that means that, you know, news of a serial killer might impede upon, you know, news of an election or the movie one sees. Um, so, you know, it takes up a lot of real estate uh, and, um, you know, it's worked for me, you know, um, but again, the books have gotten longer with every shot. So that's kind of maybe why I'm kind of hanging up my hat and moving on to other things because, Maybe volume five would have been 8,000 pages.
You're hanging. I hope you're not literally hanging up your hat. I assume you're going to be doing some moving on to different subjects. Yeah, different different adventures. This book, Rick, in, in some ways, I wouldn't say it's a it's a love affair, but it is a book about this. It's a sort of a parallel history of two very very different men, Carter and Reagan. Why yeah. do you call it Reagan Land and not Carter Land? Given that America's right turn, you, you seem to suggest happened before Reagan became president. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I'm also in business, right? So uh, I have to move product. <laughs> and that's definitely that would have killed, killed the book at birth, would it? If it was called Carterland, it would have yeah, had to be a, a cardigan. Strangled in the cradle, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, the, 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 the journey from Nixon land, which was two books ago, to Reagan land, joined by a book called Invisible Bridge. Uh, I think that um, the um, framing of... Uh, Reagan as its center uh, has to do with kind of conceptualization of the series itself, which was a story of how America went from this kind of center-left hegemony to Reagan's um, presidency. And I've always joked that I put presidents on the cover because presidents sell, but, you know, as we kind of hinted at with the, the gargantuan-ness question, my real subject is, you know, the people who um, choose these leaders, not the leaders themselves. That, to me, is much more fascinating. I see myself much more as kind of an anthropologist of America than a biographer of American leaders. Do you think that these two men, uh, Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter, did they capture two Americas? Or are, are they really the same America? You know, it's so interesting. Carter was such an anomalous figure, and it's really hard to see him as uh, representing more than some uh, trends that were kind of tended, ended up being epiphenomenal. I mean, I guess there is sort of, we have this kind of perpetual longing for an outsider and kind of a non-politician. So that kind of, that, that was a Carter feature that kind of took you know, I mean, you can see it even in Donald Trump, this idea that he's not someone from Washington. Uh, Jimmy Carter would have this laugh line. He would say, I'm not from Washington. And the audience would just cheer and laugh because this, is, of course, is 1976, right after Watergate. Um, Carter was a tricky figure because he um, ran kind of as a resume candidate. His resume was that he didn't have a Washington resume. And he kind of ran uh, as a kind of like a cultural style. Um, uh, a friend of mine who writes for the AP points out that he was like the singer-songwriter president. He was this guy who wore flannel shirts and talked about his feelings. But he didn't really talk in 1976 about what his vision was for the country or the economy. It was just kind of selling himself as a personality. And then once he got into uh, office, he um, very much bore down very hard in this idea that America needed to sacrifice and that America, you know, um, needed to kind of downscale its ambitions. And I don't think if he said that on the campaign trail, anyone would have wanted to hear that. But it became very much the, the, the leap motif of his presidency. And Reagan and Reaganism just obliterated that sensibility when the American uh, within American political culture. No one can kind of go into office and say, you know, America is anything else than the greatest country that ever existed. Right. No one can campaign in any way other than to say that uh, the only thing that that um, that America needs is more America. Right. Uh, so that's that was Re Reagan's most profound contribution to American political culture. I think it's a, a baleful one because I think we really kind of need to reckon with our past and our sins in order to transcend them. 
Uh, but Jimmy Carter was the kind of the stern kind of Sunday school teacher who was wrapping you on your knuckles for, you know, um, having a little too much fun, perhaps. Rick, uh, the relationship between Carter and Reagan, of course, brings to mind this other sim uh, this asymmetry between Trump and Biden. Right. Does does Biden have a little bit of Carter in him? I mean, he hasn't got the cardigan and he talks about American greatness, but it's not convincing. He actually believes in. <laughs> uh, I, 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 uh, I think we could have a little row about that. I think that he absolutely buys into the idea of America as kind of the transcendent God's chosen nation thing. Um, but uh, a reviewer just kind of pointed that out. Uh, Biden and Carter have an interesting relationship. He was the first senator to endorse Carter for president. But that, I think, says more about uh, Biden's gifts for kind of taking the temperature of the country and sticking his finger in the wind. He always has been sort of uh, some people have said the, the superpower of Joe Biden is that anything he says automatically becomes sensible for the fact of him saying it. So, yes, he he was a he was a Carter fan. But then by 1980, as I kind of have a little fun with in the book, he uh, simultaneously manages to endorse Carter in speeches in Pennsylvania during the primary against Ted Kennedy in 1980, but also <laughs> says, well, he's not wheat cakes. <laughs> so he basically gives him the most tepid endorsement possible. So I think Biden in this reckoning is just basically a, is and was kind of the weather vane of American politics. And now that Americans... Americans kind of political center is certainly in the Democratic Party moving to the left. You know, we see him doing things like, you know, um, appointing economic advisors that, you know, are fixtures on the left wing of the Democratic Party. Well, speaking of the left wing of the Democratic Party and, uh, and your book, uh, Rick, the, the subtitle is America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. Some people would argue it's been turning right ever since. Yeah, we had an I, I, I'm guessing, you know, him, perhaps even a friend of yours, David Rothkopf on the show a few weeks ago, talking about his book, Traitor. Oh, I don't know that book. Interesting. Uh, it's an interesting book. And Rothkopf is a very good example, I think, of a, of a very smart, articulate and, and, and media savvy leftist. He uh, he argued uh, in our interview that Trump grew straight out of, 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 of Reagan which I was kind of surprised with because I always assumed that Reagan had established himself in the pantheon of, of reasonably successful American presidents, even from the point of view of the left. How do you see this, uh, this connection between Trump and, and, and Reagan? You're on the left too. Yeah. Is Trump the direct result of Reagan? I think it's a very interesting question I get asked a lot. And I think he's the direct result of a certain tendency in Reagan. And one of the things that... Uh, uh, that's important to understand about Ronald Reagan was that very much was kind of a public Reagan and a private Reagan. And, you know, I wrote a, in, in the book, do you remember, you might remember this part where I talk about his private letters that he dictated. Right, right. Public letters that were written for him, for him to sign. And it was like night and day. He would say absolutely, you know, cracker stuff in his private letters to his buddies. And then, you know, kind of write, you know, these sign these letters to New York Times columnists, you know, trying to sound like he was in the broad center of uh, public opinion. So both Reagan himself and the coalition that Reagan put together, which included, you know, people like Jerry Falwell, who, you know, would say the most kind of savage, wicked 
hateful, violent things about gays and lesbians, right? Uh, that kind of resemble the sort of things Donald Trump would say out loud about, you know, Muslims or, or, or Mexicans, right? So um, there was a very interesting dynamic that you see really kind of beginning with Richard Nixon and reaching a certain sort of maturation with Ronald Reagan and bequeathed to all future Republican leaders prior to Donald Trump that you kind of, um, you weaponize a certain kind of demagogic politics, right? The, 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 the kind of feral, uh, uh, hatred of the other and tribalism uh, that can really um, add jet fuel to a political campaign, but also can get out of control. And the, the generation that Ronald Reagan was part of, you know, remembered World War II. They remembered Hitler. They remembered Mussolini. So they 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 did they kind of kept that Pandora's box closed, but they also kind of hinted at it. I'm being kind of oblique. But the, the metaphor we use in American politics to talk about it is the idea of uh, dog whistle politics, that you kind of signal your sympathy with kind of um, racism, but you don't say racist things explicitly. And the transformation from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump is the lowering of that scrim of respectability, right? And, and you just kind of jack straight into demagogic politics. You know, you open Pandora's box heedlessly, you know, devil's take the hindmost. And the most interesting thing about Donald Trump as an avatar of Republican politics is that that sort of politics has been um, adopted by the rest of the Republican Party. You know, so you get like a Lindsey Graham who originally kind of spoke in 2016 in terms of, wow, this guy is out of control, but he's more and more kind of acting not only in support of Donald Trump, but talking like Donald Trump. Uh, my favorite example is when Lindsey Graham had a um, debate against his African-American opponent for Senate. And he said he was asked, do African-Americans, are they safe in South Carolina, you know, from from police abuse and that sort of thing. And Lindsey Graham's answer was, well, they're perfectly safe as long as they're not liberal, you know, which sounds like the kind of thing a lynching politician would say in, in you know, the 1950s. So, you know, kind of lowering that scrim of re respectability. Um, but, you know, doing the same sort of things and having the same sort of policy goals. After all, don't forget that the only major legislation that Trump was able to get through Congress was a massive tax cut. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, Rick, I do want to get to some of the policy stuff, but isn't there something else that we haven't talked about yet, which is the, the visual element? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Carter was certainly not cinematic. Uh, I don't know what the best word to describe him as. He's not a television president. He, you know, we, we, we remember him for all the, the bad uh, visual images, the collapsing in the, in the, in the marathon, the being attacked by a, a, a rabbit while he was fishing. Reagan, of course, is, is straight out of Hollywood, literally and, and metaphorically. Right. Um, we did an interview with David Thompson, um, uh, 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 the, the film historian. Yeah. Uh, and we talked, of course, about the connection between Trump and Rosebud. Right. Um, it, it was a wonderful interview, actually. He's a tremendous, uh, he, he's, he's a tremendous, uh, he's a tremendous guy to talk to. Um, on the cinematic precursors of Donald Trump, is, um, is really the connection between Reagan and Trump a visual one? Uh, 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 Thompson said the one book that still hasn't been written about Trump is how he dominated the camera. There's a certain yeah. uh, a certain similarity to to to, to Reagan, who of course, was so 
comfortable on camera, both in video yeah. and in photographic terms? Let me let me begin by making a respectful demurral. Uh, Jimmy Carter, as a as a visual uh, politician, was absolutely brilliant in his nineteen seventy six campaign. Probably the most effective visual campaign ever. You know, he had commercials in which he was wearing a flannel shirt and sifting his fingers through the whole, the, the soil, which is what the American people were looking like looking for. This sort of you know kind of non politician, this non glamour after you know sort of uh, the failure of American institutions. So, but going back to the the, the tr that particular trail, there's a really fascinating book by a scholar, a media scholar whose name I don't recall, but his book is called The President Electric, and he points out that when uh, Ronald Reagan was hosting the TV show General Electric Theater which was all the way through the early 60s. So this was really what people would have in mind when they voted for him in 1966 for governor, uh, and which was actually, he was much more famous for than for his movies because it was a number one hit show as compared to his movies, which are all, tended to be also Rands, uh, that he would have these five minute commercials in between in the middle of the episode that were often filmed at his home that was built for him by General Electric of his family kind of living their life amidst all these General Electric products. And this scholar describes it as the first TV reality show, right? So he had this kind of character scripted for himself by the best Hollywood had to offer as the kind of amiable suburban dad. And when California in 1966, then America in 1980, was looking for this kind of amiable suburban dad to protect them from the fearful others that were kind of you know, seen as uh, deflecting their American dream, he was there, right? He had been cast in that role by the best technology that, that Hollywood had. In much the same way, Donald Trump was cast in this structured role in The Apprentice as the kind of omnicompetent, uh, executive who everyone uh, revered, who knew everything, understood everything, uh, all these celebrities, you know, kind of deferred to. So both of them had characters that were scripted for them by the best, by the best the business had to offer. So very much uh, came to the public as a prepackaged product uh, outside the realm of politics. No coincidence, of course, that um, perhaps the most... Uh... The most uh, prescient book of all about contemporary American politics was written by Neil Postman in 1985, amusing ourselves to death. He certainly wouldn't have written that book without Reagan. You know, I've never read it. Uh, maybe I should. Oh, well, that's your reading yeah. assignment, Rick. You've got to read that. You may not. Of course. Uh, maybe you can write your next book about Postman. Let's let's drill down a little bit and briefly into into some of the issues uh, you talked about the rise of the religious right. We had Catherine Stewart on the show talking about the rise of religious nationalism in 2020, a similar, a similar show about white evangelicals stopping loving their neighbors. You, you suggest in your book that the, the roots of this white radical uh, right-wing uh, evangelicalism was born in Reagan, maybe not right. born, but certainly in a, in a, in a contemporary yeah. sense. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that one of the things that people will come away from my book understanding is that it shouldn't shock you at all that the religious right embraced Trump, um, that this was a movement, movement that actually had a kind of viciousness at its center. Uh, you know, we associate, you know, Christianity with the Prince of Peace, right? So we kind of like think, well, how did this happen, right? But there's this this sort of almost quasi-fascist idea that America, um, you know, is the tip of the spear of God's crusade to redeem the world in blood and fire. 
uh, is very much at the center of figures like uh, Jerry Falwell, who would say things during speeches against gay rights initiatives that, you know, a homosexual will just as soon kill you as look at you. A lot of these people had been segregationists in the 1950s. Uh, what the things that they were said about gays were um, as violent and as vicious and as conspiratorial as anything uh, that they said during the civil rights movement in the 1950s. And of course, um, they believed in um, violence uh, to a great Right, not only violence, but of course the, the the origins perhaps of the modern NRA were born in, in the period you write about. We had Frank Smythe on the show talking about this contemporary NRA. Yeah, they're in the uh, you, you write a little bit about that in your book as well. Yes, uh, the NRA was taken over by its most militant faction in 1977, same year that the Southern Baptist Convention was taken over by its militant right-wing faction, and using the same kind of techniques of kind of parliamentary tricks and underground organizing uh, that I trace all the way back to you know the Goldwater years when the Goldwater people took over the Republican Party, literally learning techniques that they had they had borrowed from you know the Stalinists of the 1930s and 40s. If there's one theme, perhaps Rick, that sort of ties all this together, it's the destruction of public space. Absolutely. We had. Um... We had Derek Black on the show, written a very good book about the assault on public education. You write a lot about education yep. in the book, too. If there is an ideological heart to Reaganism, is it this assault on the public space? Absolutely. Uh, the seven most dangerous words are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. That was one of his big laugh lines. You know, in his inaugural speech in January 20th, 1981, he said, uh, government isn't the solution, government is the problem, which unfortunately was something that uh, Jimmy Carter kind of, and this is why, you know, Jimmy Carter is part of the rise of Reaganland. He offered kind of a glide path. You know, when he gave his State of the Union speech in 1978, he said, you know, government cannot solve inflation, it cannot cure poverty. He very much um, was kind of part of the neoliberal trend in the Democratic Party. So we see this kind of atrophy of the idea that uh, the government in a, in a democracy where the people are sovereign is the institutional manifestation of uh, uh, policies to create the greatest good for the greatest number. And in, in its stead is this kind of idea of kind of an individualist war of all against all, you know, Margaret Thatcher's, there is no society, only individuals and families. And that's the big trend that we're kind of trying to repair right now. Uh, I mentioned uh, Edmund Fawcett's book at the beginning, uh, which is a wonderful history of conservatism, a complementary volume to yours focusing on a, on a broader history of conservatism. He has a great quote about the, the, this, this contest between liberalism and conservatives. He says, he writes, well, politics, chess, liberals had white, they moved first. Conservatives had black, they countered liberalism's opening moves. In time, the initiative changed hands. Conservatives who began as anti-moderns came to master modernity, for the right was in telling ways the stronger consists uh, the, the the stronger contestant. I would argue that that's still the case, and I would argue that people like uh, David Brooks are mm -hmm. actually wrong about writing off the Republicans. Yeah, I think that's actually an excellent formulation. I think that that is the big story you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s in my journalism, you know, that I'm telling is basically that the story of the American politics of American politics has become a story in which the right are the protagonists and the left kind of react uh, 
I think that the the dynamic that creates it is a fascinating one. The relationship of conservatism to modernity uh, is one that's full of richness and paradox. you know, conservatism is never really about going back to the past because, of course, we can't go back to the past. Right. It's, it's, it's stealing inventions. And, and, and so you and Fawcett are actually arguing about the same thing, this invention of, of not, if not lies, certainly mythologies or, sure. or, sure. or fictional narratives. Sure. And uh, once you kind of do things that are counter to objective reality, the objective reality being you can't go back to the past, you introduce a lot of fascinating distortions. One might even say things that uh, render politics berserk to uh, take this full circle. Yeah. Back to the berserks. Everyone needs to read Rick Perlstein's new book, Reaganland, at least buy it and put it on their shelf. Their shelf will probably it very because it's a thousand yeah. words, but it's a marvelous book. It's very readable. I don't know quite know how you wrote a thousand pages of readable prose. Uh, Rick, but congratulations. Um, and I'm disappointed now there won't be a fifth volume, but I'm sure you'll do some wonderful work in other areas. You're stuck in Chicago at the end of November 2020 in these strange times. What else should people be reading, Rick, to, make, like, to, like to, to was, maintain their sanity in addition to your book? Fortunately, I'm not really stuck in Chicago because my wife and I have a cabin in the woods where I've taken up fishing. So uh, I've been recommending uh, people retreat from politics and, and do something that has to do with their their hands and their bodies and their souls. Uh, I've been reading uh, the, 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 the 1653 masterpiece, The Complete Angler, or The Contemplative Man's Recreation, uh, which is the third most published book besides Shakespeare and the Bible. Uh, but when it comes to politics and really kind of understanding the American berserk, my my absolute favorite these days is uh, Richard Kreitner's uh, Break It Up, which is a paradigm-shifting uh, analysis of how disunited the United States have been ever since there, uh, there wasn't a United States. And as it happens, and, 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 and this was not set up, uh, Richard Kreitner's uh, Break It Up, uh, we had him on the show a few weeks ago, so that's a great way uh, to, uh, to end this conversation. Good on you, Andrew. Cheers. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.